Uh, we're going to do the wanderings part one. We have a, a section here that begins in chapter 21, 1 Samuel 21 through 24. Uh, I would encourage, actually I'll put this up here now and you can be looking at it. Uh, this is half of what we're going to be talking about. No, a third. Uh, it's a long stretch of scripture, right? We're talking about four or five chapters here that David's just on the run, right? We, of course, have, have gone through a lot of David's life up till now. He's mostly been victorious and Saul hates him. And we talked a lot about that last week. Uh, as we go through into the first section of wondering, then there's a break in chapter 25. We're going to devote all of the next lesson to chapter 25 because I love it so much. Uh, the story of David and Abigail. Um, and, and I just like the story, so we're going to do that uh, next week. But the first half, then, of his wandering in the wilderness, running away from Saul. And I've got this outline. We're not going to read all of these things. I'm going to leave that up there instead of, you know, revealing over time. You're going to be looking at that. We're not going to read all of these verses, but we're going to talk about the story as we get into the story of David. Of course, he meets, uh, after the, the stuff that we read last week, he meets the priest Ahimelech and Nob in chapter 21, the beginning of chapter 21. And this is where we see the story quoted in Matthew, uh, Matthew 20, in Matthew 12, 1 through 8 of God up there, uh, when uh, uh, Jesus is questioned about his disciples eating with unwashed hands. And, and there's a, a discussion of uh, the Sabbath and, and what should you do on the Sabbath. And then there's David in here. And, and Jesus quotes and said, do you not, did you not read that David took the showbread, the show bread that was only for the priests? Well, that's here in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 8. He, uh, the priest gives him the bread. There's no, but nothing else to give him. That's all that he has to give him. And he takes you know, coincidentally, I don't know how much a coincidence, how much is providence. It just so happens that Goliath's sword is being stored here. So he takes Goliath's sword. He takes some armor. Uh, basically, the priest just gives him a bunch of stuff. And, and David goes on his way. And he attempts to run to Gath. Of course, who, who's from Gath? That's the Philistines. It's kind of weird to me. Like he hadn't put it together. As you read in 21, 9 through 15, we're not going to read it. But it's kind of weird. He, he sort of doesn't put together, oh, the, the Philistines probably hate me. He's like runs over to Gath and is like, oh, maybe the Philistines, they'll help me out because I'm running away from Saul. And then he gets there and he overhears they're talking about David and how much they hate David. And so he pretends to be a crazy person. He just pretends to be insane so they, they won't realize that it's David that they hate so much. And so he leaves the Philistines in Gath, goes to Adullam and Moab, meets his family in Moab and asks the, the king of the Moabites, hey, can my family stay here? And, and you know, it's kind of an interesting thing you don't really think about. Did Saul ever go after his family. Well, part of the reason Saul never went after David's family is he leaves him in Moab. And so they're in another nation and Saul doesn't want to start a whole thing with the Moabites. Uh, so his family stays in Moab. And then Saul gets on his trail. And this is where we're going to pick up the narrative. Saul picks up his trail in Nob. Ahimelech, the priest that helped David, gave him the showbread, gave him Goliath's sword, gave him all this stuff. And you can see in 22, verses 6 to 8, which we will, will read, we're going to go back to this crazy picture of Saul, because as paranoia is starting to take hold. Have you ever known anybody that was paranoid? That just always thought everybody was out to get them? Maybe you're paranoid. Ooh, am I out to get you? I don't know. Right? Have you ever known anybody like that? Saul's paranoia is really taking hold here. In 22, 6 through 8, Saul found out the whereabouts of David and the men who were with him. 
Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree at an elevated location with a spear in hand. He's just waiting. He's just waiting to throw that spear again at David, right? The spear that he threw at David previously. Probably, I don't know. Maybe that one broke. But he's, he's, he's ready, right? And all his servants stationed around him. And Saul said to his servants, listen up, you Benjaminites. Is Jesse's son giving fields and vineyards to all of you? Is he making all of you commanders and officers? All of you have conspired against me. No one informs me when my own son makes an agreement with the son of Jesse. Not one of you feels sorry for... And you could just... Oh, man. He's so whiny. Not one of you feels sorry for him. I don't know if he's saying it angrily or sadly. Like, is he, is he being more sad here? Is he indignant? Like, I don't know. I've wondered this. Like, the emotion of this. You can inflect this a bunch of different ways, right? Maybe it's angry. Not one of you feels sorry for me or informs me that my own son has commissioned my own servant to hide an ambush against me, as is the case today. You all hate me. You're all out to get me. Is that true? No. He's paranoid. He's totally paranoid. They're not out to get him. Nobody's out to get him. His son doesn't want him to die, surely. His son just doesn't want Saul to do the wrong thing. That's it. All Jonathan wants is don't be evil, Saul. Just don't be evil. He's not out to get him. Nobody's out to get him. Now, it is possible that they don't feel sorry for him because he's king, right? He's king. He's in charge. He's having a good life. He's so wrapped up in his, his hatred of David. And I want to just touch on this. We'll talk about it at the end here. Uh, the paranoia of life. Who tends to be the most paranoid? Just think about it for a minute. I think you'll find in life, those who are the most paranoid are those who tend to think poorly of others. If all you think about is poorly of other people, and that's how you relate to the world, you think that other people are, you're thinking very poorly of others, of course you would think, that they're all out to get you because you're the center of the universe, right? You're the center of everything. So because I think so poorly of you, I think that anything that you do that negatively affects me, you must have meant it because you don't like me. And it's a very selfish attitude. Paranoia is selfishness. It's pride that I am obviously the center of the universe and so everything that goes bad, it must be intentional. You hear people speaking in another language and you think to yourself, oh, they must be talking about me. That's paranoia. They're probably talking about what they're going to go eat for lunch or something. I don't know. Not everything's about you. Let it go. Here's Saul, his paranoia taking control, taking root in his heart. That he's so concerned about David that he sees enemies everywhere, even among his own servants. And we keep reading in verse 22, uh, chapter 22. No, I actually want to go back here real quick. And what does this cause him to do? He goes to Nob. He talks to Ahimelech. Ahimelech, how dare you help David? Ahimelech didn't know that Saul hated David. He just, David showed up. He needed help. He gives him stuff. Okay, away we go. Saul shows up at Nob, kills them all. Tells his servants to kill all the priests. How dare you help David? How dare you help my enemy? And so he actually, he just, well, he doesn't do it himself. He tells his men, kill all these priests. Which, of course, is horrible and despicable and wicked. Now, it's interesting, David takes responsibility for that in 22, uh, beginning in verse 20. Uh, David takes responsibility. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to David. His name was Abiathar. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew the day when uh, Doeg the Edomite was there with me, uh, was there that he would certainly tell Saul, I am guilty of all the deaths in your father's house. Stay with me, don't be afraid. Whoever seeks my life is seeking yours as well. 
you are secure with me. Uh, David knew that by being at Ahimelech's place, getting help from Ahimelech, and then there's this servant, Doeg, which we didn't talk about, but he's there and he goes and tells Saul. David does not blame Saul. David does not say that Saul is so evil, although I'm sure he's thinking it. But David's first instinct is what? If I had not been there and asked for help, if I had taken care of Doeg, if I had done what I should have done, if I had been more responsible, then those people would not have died. The contrast between Saul and David, we're seeing it over and over and over. Saul focuses all his energy on the failings of others. You're all conspiring against me. Nobody feels sorry for me. How dare you all do that? David focuses his energy on his own responsibility, failures, and in some cases successes, but he looks inward instead of looking outward. David takes responsibility. Then David goes to, uh, uh, I don't know how to say that place, Keilah. Let's say Keilah. Uh, he delivers Keilah uh, from uh, attacking army. He, now, we're going to read this in just a minute. One of the things in this next stretch of, of scriptures is how many times David asks the Lord. He goes and he says, God, should I go help these people? God, should I, go, should I go deliver these people? Now, David is sort of, over time, he's built up a following of people who have also been running away from Saul, people who are outcasts, people who are, uh, who, who in some ways are out in the wilderness because of some other struggle that they have. And they've all sort of gathered around David. David's sort of building up his own sort of mobile army. And so he uses this force. He goes and delivers Keilah, the city of Keilah, makes sure that God, that's what God wants him to do. Uh, Saul goes to Keilah. He hears, oh, David's over there at Keilah. He goes and tries to to capture him. And three times, we're going to read these sections, three times in this, in this brief section, David is very careful. Again, contrasted with Saul, David is very careful to ask God, what should I do? Chapter 23, verse 2, David asked the Lord, should I go and strike down these Philistines? The Lord said, said to David, go strike down the Philistines and deliver Keilah. Uh, 23, 4, David asked the Lord once again, and again, the Lord replied, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Then he does it. And then later on, Saul comes after him. Uh, 23.10, David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has clearly heard that Saul is planning to come to Keilah to destroy the city because of me. Will the leaders of Keilah deliver me into his hand? And God tells him, yeah, they're going to sell you out. 100% they're going to sell you out. So David leaves. And again, we're seeing the contrast between David and Saul. What made David successful and Saul not? Saul was always thinking about himself. What benefits me? What benefits my situation? How are others thinking about me? What should I be doing to increase my reputation, to increase my standing? He's so focused on himself. David, on the other hand, continually what? Asking, what does God want? Doesn't mean David's perfect. We know that. David makes mistakes. He should have killed Doeg, which we just read. But he's willing to own up to it because he understands that what is good is what God wants and not what he wants. And so it's all chases David through the wilderness and they're going around and around. They're, you know, just running over. So David must have been in such good shape, guys. Oh, man. Just trekking all over the wilderness, all over the place. And so we get to the sort of the meat of this story here, the, the sort of the, the, I think, the most famous part of this particular section of Scripture in chapter 24, when David spares Saul. And you're probably familiar with the story, right? 
uh, David is wandering around and Saul's trying to find him and they sort of come upon him and they find, they discover Saul's army and he's sleeping and nobody's around and, and his men want, want him to kill Saul. His men are like, yeah, this is your chance, David. You can do it. Actually, let's just read it. Uh, chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. David's men said to him, this is the day about which the Lord said to you, I will give the enemy into your hand and you can do to him whatever seems appropriate to you. So David got up and quietly cut off at the edge of Saul's robe I'm just thinking about this. Uh, let's keep reading. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off an edge of Saul's robe. He said to his men, May the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord. This is where we get into the interesting word Lord here, right? Sometimes Lord refers to Yahweh, the supreme Lord of all. But Lord, of course, is just a generic term. So when you have the capital L, the, the translators think that's talking about God. And when you have the lowercase l, right, that's referring to a human who's in charge. So when he says here, may the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord, he's referring to Saul. Saul is the person that's in charge of him because Saul is the king and David is the inferior in this particular context. May the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to Saul, who is the Lord's chosen one, by extending my hand against him. After all, he is the Lord's chosen one. David restrained his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul left the cave and started down the road. And you kind of get the picture here. They're all sleeping in a cave. David sneaks in with his guys. He cuts the robe off. He comes back. And then he feels bad about it. Why does he feel bad? Again, because David is constantly thinking about what does God want. God chose Saul. God is the one who chose. Now, Saul did a, b a bunch of bad stuff and, and God revoked that choice. But it's unclear exactly how much God told David about all of the things that he dealt with Saul. For all David knows, this is still the Lord's anointed. I don't have the right to kill the Lord's anointed. This is the Lord's chosen one. It's not my place to kill him. If, if he's going to die, God can strike him down. God could raise up an army. God could do all sorts of stuff. But David's essential point is, I'm not going to be the one to do it. Far be it from me, may the Lord keep me far away from doing such a thing to my Lord, who is my, uh, the, uh, again, that's confusing. Doing such a thing to Saul, who is the Lord's chosen one. And so they come back and David has to hold his men back. Nope, we're not going to attack them. We're not going to do it. And what must have meant his men have been thinking here? David, this is your chance. This is it, man. He's been chasing you all over the place. Let's kill him. Let's be done with it. Let's go home. But no, they don't get to do that. And so David, he calls him from across the ridge. And the way the text is described, he's sort of, there's sort of a valley between them. And David, uh, Saul's over here in one cave and David's standing over here so they can't get him. And he calls out to Saul and they have this conversation uh, in chapter 24, verses 9 through 12. David said to Saul, and they're probably really yelling this across the ravine. Why do you pay attention when men say David is seeking to do your harm? Today your own eyes have seen how the Lord delivered you this very day into my hands into the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I had pity on you and said, I will not extend my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's chosen one. Look, my father, and see the edge of your robe. And he's probably sort of waving it up here, right? Look and see the edge of your robe in my hand. And Saul probably looks down. He's like, what? Oh man, that's crazy. When I cut off the edge of your robe, I did not kill you. So realize and understand, I am not planning evil or rebellion. How many times does he have to say this? Jonathan's tried to convince him. Now David's trying to convince him. And of course, he's using this as evidence, right? I could have killed you. I could have just stabbed you right there, and I didn't. Even though I have not sinned against you, you are waiting to ambush to take my life. May the Lord 
And again, note this phrasing. May the Lord judge between the two of us and may the Lord vindicate me over you, but my hand will not be against you. I suspect none of us are ever going to be in the position of a blood feud where you're attempted to assassinate somebody. I don't know you. Maybe you're tempted to assassinate people. I hope not. But you have conflicts with people. You have people at work that just, uh, they just grind your bones, don't they? They just get on your nerves and you just, ah, everything they do is so annoying and, ah. And they just speak bad about you and they put you down and they make you feel miserable and you just, don't you have people in your life like that? Maybe it's not at work. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend of a friend. Maybe you have a friend group and there's always that guy. Then you don't know why everybody else likes that guy, but they keep inviting him to stuff and he's still here. Is this the attitude that you have? I don't like you. You don't like me. May the Lord judge between the two of us. I am going to continue to treat you well, whoever it is in your life, your coworker, your friend, whatever, hopefully not your spouse. I am going to continue to treat you right. I'm going to continue to behave the way that I should. No matter what you're doing to me, no matter how you're treating me, essentially that's what David is saying, right? You're trying to kill me, but I'm going to treat you righteously. Nobody's trying to kill you, probably. But you still have opportunity to treat those who treat you poorly, to treat them righteously. And if you do that, then it's no longer you that is the judge, right? You're not judging. You're trying to stay out of it. I'm going to treat you the way that I know I should. And we have the attitude that David has here, right? May the Lord judge between the two of us. And may the Lord vindicate me over you. If that be his will. The implied thing here is what? If that's God's will. If that's the Lord's will. Now, we know that verse, right? In Romans. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Never, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That word never is doing a lot of work in that sentence. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's this attitude. Because ultimately, David, I think, does not want Saul to die. He has the appropriate attitude. It would be better... For Saul to repent. It would be better for Saul to turn from his evil ways, to, to remove this feud, and to do what's right, and to serve the Lord again. That would be ideal. The people in your life that you, you can't stand, hopefully you don't hate them, but you can't stand them. You can't stand to be around them. They're just aggravating and annoying. Your goal and your, your aim should not be, someday they'll go to hell and I'll feel really good about that. That's a terrible attitude. But I know it's an attitude that we're tempted to have, right? Your attitude should be, hopefully one day, they too will repent and turn to the Lord. And in that day, if I have continued to treat them righteously, to treat them fairly, to treat them kindly, when they are seeking higher purpose, seeking a relationship with Yahweh, who are they going to turn to? Maybe you. Because you've continued to do the right thing. Because the goal is not to win. The goal is to reconcile. And to let God be the judge. And so we contrast David and Saul. As we think about this contrast that we've made over and over. We're going to take a break from Saul next time. Uh, going to talk about some other people in David's life. But as we can contrast David and Saul, we think about Saul. What made him the person that he was versus David. 
He's paranoid. He's unrepentant, or at least changes his mind easily. A uh, thing that happens at the end of this story, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about again in a couple of times. Uh, David makes this great proclamation to Saul. Actually, I had it up there. I guess I missed a slide somehow. Let's go back here. Yes, here. Uh, in 22, 16 through 21, after David makes this great statement here, uh, Saul seemingly repents. Oh, I'm so sorry, David. I could never do that. Why would I ever harm you? I repent. And, and then what does he do two chapters later? He's right back chasing him down. Uh, so maybe he's lying in chapter 22. Maybe he's just very fickle. He seemingly repents here, but we know that that doesn't take. He still chooses to seek after David and try to kill him, even though he says the right thing in chapter 24. So when we think about Saul, he's unrepentant. He's fickle. He changes his mind all the time. He's not a solid, stable person. He's petty and vengeful. Again, those priests, Ahimelech and the priests of Nob, they didn't know that they shouldn't have done what they did. In Saul's eyes, they didn't do anything wrong necessarily. Helping David, they didn't know Saul would hate that. Saul shows up, kill them all. Well, even, even if Ahimelech had done something wrong, there's no need for Saul to kill all of the priests. Just kill Ahimelech, if you really hate Ahimelech so much. But he's petty and he's vengeful. And ultimately, he does truly evil things. And again, we ask the question, where do these traits come from? Contrasted with David, who thus far in the narrative constantly seeking God's approval, always asking God, is this what I should do? Is this what you want me to do? Thinking about God's decisions in the past and how that relates to him. I'm not going to kill Saul because God chose Saul. He takes responsibility for his actions. He protects others. Hey, I know Saul did this bad thing. It's sort of my fault. I, shouldn't, I should not have let you there. You, you stay here. That priest that escaped, Ahimelech's son, he escapes. And what does David do? He takes him in. Stay with me. He's trying to kill me too. Stick with me. I'll keep you safe. I'll protect you. He takes his family, brings them to Moab. He talks to the king of Moab. Hey, can you keep my family? Keep them safe. I got I to gotta keep running. He's restrained and controlled. Again, we ask the question, where do these traits come from? The contrast between the person who is driven by self and the person who is driven by God. Saul is ultimately a selfish person. Everything he does, selfishness, in some form. Selfishness and pride. David is, not that he doesn't have those temptations, but he is consistently thinking about the other person, consistently thinking about God's will, consistently thinking about how he can do better. Because he's relating his life back to God. A man after God's own heart. And so we think about our own lives. Stop making things about you. Stop making everything about you. Focus on others. As the Philippian letter says, what? To consider others as more significant than themselves. Well, think we'll end with some application questions here as we think about these things in a more personal way. Do you take responsibility when things go wrong? This is one of the things we're going to see over and over. We can think about Psalm 51. We haven't read the story yet. Of course, of David and Bathsheba. We'll go deeper into this when we get to it in the narrative. Uh, Nathan confronts David, of course, with his sin. And, and what does David do? He doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to come up with all these different reasons why he should have done what he did. He says, I'm, I did the wrong thing and I'm sorry. And then, of course, he writes Psalm 51 as this great expression of responsibility. Here, Saul kills Ahimelech and the priest. David didn't do that. And yet David does know that partially they died because he sought help from them. So while it's not his fault, we think about blame, 
he does take responsibility when his actions indirectly lead to harm to others, even though he didn't cause the harm, he still takes responsibility for his actions. When things go wrong in your life, are you constantly thinking about who else you can blame, whose fault it was, who else was the problem, or are you thinking about, even if it's not directly your fault, what of your own actions, either directly or indirectly led to the struggles that you're in? Because only if you take responsibility can you begin to make better choices, to make things better in your life. Do you assume the worst in others? And if so, why? Saul really got towards the end here. He really started seeing the worst in everybody else around him. And maybe this is your struggle. Other people do things to you and you think it must be intentional or purposeful or they're trying to hurt you in some way. Most of the time, other people are not thinking about you. I hate to break it to you guys. You're not as important as you think you are. None of us are. None of us are as important as we build up in our own minds. I was listening to a podcast the other day. One of the phrases that keep coming up, they're talking about selfishness. Everybody is the hero in their own story. Right? But you're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. And so we relate everything in our lives to it must be about me. It's not about you. And when things go wrong, it's not because others are out to get you. It's just because sometimes bad stuff happens. And maybe it's, again, goes back to the first part, right? Taking responsibility for your own mistakes. But really, fundamentally, at the end of the day, this most applies to our efforts to evangelize. I know we've talked about this before, but I'll hit it one more time. David was willing to look at other people and see their worth, see their value. How could they contribute? That's what David did over and over and over again. Saul looked at other people and he saw the worst in them. And if that's the attitude we have, you're not going to evangelize. Evangelists have to be optimists. Because what are we ultimately trying to do? We're trying to convince others of their need for God. And if I have the attitude, oh, this person will never respond. Oh, that person's too far gone. Oh, that person doesn't care about spiritual things. Or that person is just so horrible. What do you suddenly never have done in the last, I don't know, time goes by in six months and a year and two years and you know you haven't talked to anybody about the gospel. Why? Because you have such a dim view of humans. To be an evangelist, to evangelize to the world, you have to assume that the people you're talking to can be better, can make the right choices, can do what God wants. Number three, the last question. Do you seek God's approval and restrain, that should say personal typo there. Actually, it's just a mistake. It's not a typo. Restrain personal desire. This, more than anything else, epitomizes who David is. Except for that one time. We know that time with Bathsheba, he didn't do that. But that was sort of his major flaw, right, in that particular instance. He didn't do the thing that he was so good at. The thing that he was really good at was restraining personal desire in order to seek God's approval. That is the key to success in our lives. Not earthly success, although being self-controlled does help you have personal success, financial success. But when we're thinking about spiritual success, relationships with others, you know what's going to make your relationships with others better? If you don't just do the first thing that pops into your mind. Maybe it's physical violence, maybe it's insults, maybe it's 
shutting down. Maybe it's passive aggressiveness. I don't know. You all have your different struggles. It comes out different ways. But if you don't just do the first thing that comes into your mind, I guarantee your relationships will be better if you're more controlled. Your, your stuff at work will be better if you don't just do the first instinct, right? The first instinct to take the shortcut, to not do the project, to be lazy, to slough off blame onto other people, right? That's the natural instincts to be self-controlled and to think, well, God tells me to work for others as I am working for the Lord, to think that I'm doing the best that I can do for the, for the Lord here and to be controlled, to do what's right regardless. That is the, the contrast between David and Saul. Now, we're going to see in the next story, and uh, I guess this will be next month, in 1 Samuel 25, another time where David did not do this. He was not self-controlled, but fortunately someone else was there to be controlled for David, to stop him from doing the wrong thing. And as we think about our relationships in the church, isn't that what we're doing together? Sometimes I'm really controlled and I'm great and I'm awesome, but you know what? A lot of the times I need your help to keep me on track, to keep me doing the right thing. Just like sometimes I'm going to help you. There's no shame in that. We offer the invitation like every Sunday, every, every time we're together, the invitation because we understand it's, it's nigh impossible to do it yourself. When you're struggling, let us help you. Just like David needed help sometimes too. There's no shame in asking for help, amen? There's no shame in asking for help. Amen. Thank you, Gideon. If you need help, come while we stand and sing.